Welcome to Chit Chat Money. My name is Ryan Henderson, and I am joined by my co-host, Brett Schaefer. Today is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview an analyst to discuss a single stock. And today we have on the show, Jeff Moore, to talk about Altasource Asset Management. The ticker is AAMC. So if you hear him refer to that, just know he's referring to the company. Um, a little pitch for Jeff. He manages his own money, and he loves to look in the microcap world. He He's really, really good at understanding complex situations, and I think that'll be reflected when you listen to this episode. Um, if it gets a little difficult to, uh, to follow at the start, uh, kind of bear with us because he, he summarizes the situation really well towards the end um, and, and makes it a little more concise, and, and it just does a really good job summarizing the whole thing. But before we get to the interview, we want to talk about our presenting sponsor. This episode is presented by Stratosphere. Stratosphere is the best web-based research terminal for company-specific metrics like KPIs and segment revenues. Stratosphere has clean data for KPIs, segment data that is triple-checked for accuracy, and beautiful data visualizations, helping save you time and frustration of digging through SEC filings. We personally use Stratosphere daily for our own investing home screen, and you can use it too for free by going to stratosphere.io. That is stratosphere.io, and the link is in our show description. If you're more interested in the platform, stick around after the episode for a three-minute interview that we did with Stratosphere's founder, Braden Dennis. But without further ado, here's our interview with Jeff Moore. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome in. Today, we are joined by Jeff Moore. Jeff's been on the show once in the past, and we talked about Thrive Holdings, I believe is the full name. That was a, almost, a, I think, a year and a half ago. And today, we're talking about AAMC or Altasource Asset Management. Um, just a little background, kind of got to know Jeff through Twitter. He is, I guess, an investor in every sort of asset class uh, is not not confined to stocks a lot of real estate investing and and um, fixing fixing up homes as well um, but Jeff I guess welcome to the show for a second time yeah thanks for having me man <laughs> okay we're gonna talk about uh, I think what let's just let's just call it out the source for the episode because AAMC is maybe a little annoying to say but um, the it you mentioned this to us a year ago, a year and a half ago, and it was hairy, I guess is maybe the word. There was, there was some uh, legal stuff going on. and It's had a, a tricky history. So can you kind of give us some of the context, like what's happened leading up to today? What have the last couple of years looked like? Well, there's, there's been more than a few legal spats. Um, so AMC, uh, for those of you that are familiar with Bill Irby, it was part of the Bill Irby complex. So um, ASPS, which is Alta Source Portfolio Solutions, that's one that's kind of like a counter cyclical um, servicer uh, 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 business that's really interesting. It's been getting a fair bit of talk lately. That was part of this complex, as was Aquin Financial. Um, again, you know, really large servicer. Um, an originator, I think. Um, so anyway, these were all like one entity and then they all got spun out 
And, uh, you know, that, that happened after the, the, the financial crisis. Bill Irby made billions of dollars and seemed to, you know, he kind of, you know, originated the idea of modifications for loans, making things work with borrowers, you know, uh, things of that nature. And, you know, got into some legal troubles of his own. You know, it, uh, I, I don't really have much of an opinion on that. Um, you know, you all can can do Googling and, and, and whatnot. But um, anyway, so these multiple companies came out of this. And AltaSource was uh, one that was kind of managing um, front yard residential. And um, it also had some investors uh, uh, that were very large. It had a very high, um, you know, four or $500 stock price. Um, and uh, a hedge fund called Luxor um, was uh, a large holder and had an appointee on their board. Um, and there was a, an issue of preferred stock for $250 million. That was uh, kind of Luxor's idea. It was their documents um, that, that, that were used for this transaction. Um, the law firm that is representing Luxor in their lawsuit against AMC right now. It's actually the, 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 the firm that, that drafted these documents. So there were uh, several parties involved in this preferred suit. Um, there was $250 million of issuance of this preferred stock. It yielded 0% interest until 2044. It was issued in 2014 or so. And um, there were... Uh, optional five-year redemption periods where the holders of the common stock could um, request that the company redeem their preferred stock its face. Um, and the company would, these very, and this is the, the crux of the whole lawsuit is based on this very specific language, which is the company shall redeem from funds legally available all, but not less than all of the holders preferred shares. And we'll get into that here in just a minute. But um, anyway, so so the there was you know press release put out. They got all this stuff done, and uh, they issued the stock. And in the press release, they talked about hey, you know, while there was boilerplate language about you know general administrative purposes, blah blah blah, it was very clear they were going to be buying back stock, and, and they they bought back stock. So the stock, you know, it wound up trading up as high as you know twelve, thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars a share, something like that. And then they lost the contract to basically manage front yard. Um, uh, which was a really big uh, uh, real estate company. It was taken private in 2020. And, uh, you know, the share price language, they didn't have much of a business left. Um, and uh, anyway, so as tends to happen with these things, especially when there are low liquidity events, right? Um, 2020, Luxor comes in their five-year redemption period, as well as Putnam and um, uh, Wellington Partners who were also preferred stockholders, they wanted to redeem. And so because all three of them redeemed at one point, the company basically was told, hey, you need to redeem $250 million for preferred stock. And the company's like, well, tough shit. We don't have it, right? We don't have the legally fund, the funds legally available. I think at the time they had like $45 million, something like that. And so they got sued. And basically what this boils down to is, and there's no dispute that the funds were not legally available. What's 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 dispute basically how to remedy that, and um, uh, you know, so the company's thought is that an argument, which I tend to agree with, is that they don't have to redeem the preferred shares at all because the the language of the documents clearly says that they need to redeem all but not less than all of the preferred shares, right, from funds that are legally available. 
Um, you know, there is a lot of history where preferred stock, you know, it's it's viewed kind of like equity, but any rights that the preferred shareholder wants to have, they need to negotiate. And, you know, kind of how it looks from my reading of the documents is Luxor actually wanted to make it so that, you know, other parties could not be redeemed um, unless Luxor was also redeemed and they were trying to keep money in the company to drive the share price higher. I would argue it's to get higher management fees. Um, and to get compensation um, that way. But ultimately, they're in this lawsuit. Um, uh, right now, it looks like there's going to be an appeal of the summary judgment that threw out both sides' arguments. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. But the interesting thing is that AAMC has settled with both the Wellington Partners and Putnam Investments, um, which got rid of two of the three claims against them. And they settled this for roughly 11, 11 and a half cents on the dollar. Um, because you know, if you if you do a net present value of anything that is maturing in 2044, yielding zero percent interest, it's not worth a whole hell of a lot. And the settlement happened over a year ago when interest rates were at basically zero, right? And so, from where the interest rates have gone up that you would generally discount, I would argue that the present value of this preferred stock is even less than eleven half cents a dollar. I mean, maybe six, seven, eight cents, something like that. So that could be a potentially very large catalyst for the company if they get a favorable judgment, if they settle it on similar terms. Um, so there's that. They've also had a lawsuit with their CEO where uh, their ex-CEO, um, where uh, you know they were awarded, I think, $1.6 million uh, from the, the arbiter um, and whatnot. There's some other lawsuits that are kind of interesting. One of them is kind of lottery ticket that we can talk about later. Um, so that's kind of the legal parameters of, of, of that. And uh, there was a podcast I was on with Thomas Brazil um, with uh, Andrew Walker that, that that's out there that you can kind of see some of the legal arguments for the Luxor case. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so, so now they, they have a lending business um, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and uh, they also have a, a call option, if you will, to do some crypto ATMs with forum pay. Um, everybody always seems to get freaked out when when they see that they, they can do the crypto ATMs. Um, it's not a big part of the business. They have an option to potentially spend up to $2 million on these crypto ATMs that actually have really interesting economics, um, you know, and have incredibly high ROEs. I think it'd be a great thing for them to do, especially from where they're not taking, they would not be taking crypto onto the balance sheet. There's this, you know, forum pay that, that takes that risk because they own the marketplace for it and the exchange. But that's really not the focus of AAMC. I mean, it's it's less than, that allocation is call it a percent and a half of their current assets. Um, so we, we don't even need to think about it. Um, and uh, right now they're doing uh, lending, right? So they have, you know, bridge loans and uh, DSCR loans, which are debt service coverage ratio loans. Um, investors such as myself use that product uh, for rental housing. Um, uh, for permanent financing and whatnot. And uh, the the thing that really sets uh, AltaSource apart from other companies like this are two things. One, they're, um, they're a U.S. Virgin Islands company, um, and they're not a REIT, right? So their corporate structure is one aspect of that. So they don't have to be paying out dividends. They can shore up their balance sheet and keep reinvesting money in the business in a very interesting way um, that, that REITs are not capable of doing. Uh, because they have to pay out, I think it's what, 90% of their earnings or something of that nature. Yeah, I think um, 90. Yeah. And from where they are headquartered in the U.S. Virgin Islands, they get very, very interesting tax treatment. 
um, a much lower tax rate than you would get by being, you know, a domestic, uh, you know, a Delaware Corp or a, you know, Nevada Corp or whatever. So that's that corporate structure is one. And then the other interesting aspect is the goal here is for them to not keep these loans on the balance sheet. They're not an aggregator. So, you know, a lot of their comps would be, say, Manhattan Bridge Capital, uh, ticker symbol is LOAM, SACOM Capital, um, ticker symbol is SACH, um, which I used to have stock and baby bonds in, um, and then like Redwood uh, Trust. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to have the balance sheet risk that a lot of other companies would from like loans going bad. The goal is to sell these loans to say, you know, financial institutions like, uh, well, REITs, you could sell them to REITs. Um, uh, you could sell to life insurance companies, banks, um, you know, lots of pension funds. I mean, anybody that's wanting to get a high yielding loan um, would be willing to buy this paper. Uh, and, the, you know, the rates are, you know, as low as eight, eight and a half percent, probably go up to 15, depending on on on, on the uh, the loan product. And so A and C gets these and they sell them, they can service the loans and they'll get a, a spread for the sale in addition to some origination fees. And based on their presentations, those spreads are anywhere from say two, 250 basis points to say 450, maybe 500 basis points. Seems like their average is gonna be about 350 basis points. So as they sell those loans and aggregate them, or as they, as they, they sell the loans rather, not aggregate them, um, you know, they, they can get some very interesting um, returns that are, 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 are just super high margin um, with a lot of velocity and they can do it with a very small balance sheet. So, you know, on the current market cap of call it probably 40 million or something, there's 1.78 million shares outstanding and the current price is I think 28, 29 bucks. So whatever that works out to, you can get to a very, very, very low earnings multiple very quickly um, with, 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 with this company. Okay. So to kind of, summarize a lot of very very messy history today it looks it's primarily just the lending business with the option of the crypto atms is there anything else that's a part of the business today that investors should know about um not in terms of the operations of the business um i mean it's a very simple business it's like let's originate loans and let's sell them to financial institutions and the way they sell them is interesting too, because it's through it, they're they're working to do forward flow contracts, and it's not an auction model, right? Because in the past, what would happen, and a lot of these companies actually went out, they would went out of business, they would originate these loans, and then they'd have to sell them really quick, but they didn't have these forward flow agreements, so they were selling them at whatever rate the market was paying, right? It's pretty dangerous, right? I mean, interest rates go up, all of a sudden that four percent yield doesn't look very good. So the value of your loan is going to go from, you know, 106 or whatever to 100, maybe down to 92, right? And then you're out of business. AMC, they originate based on the parameters of the people that they have contracts with or are going to have contracts with and sell based on that through these forward flow agreements. So it minimizes the balance sheet risk, but also the sales risk for them. Okay, let's Let's talk about those DSCR and, and bridge loans for a second, because I'm, I'm guessing most of our investors or most of our listeners probably aren't familiar um, with kind of that market. So you have both studied the business and, and you also have experience actually taking one of those DSCR loans out. Can you explain 
what those are? And then what was that process like for you kind of go through your experience with it? Yeah. Yeah. Happy to. So, okay. Um, well, I've done a bridge loan with them as well. Um, so, uh, we'll, we'll talk about both of those products. So first the, there's the bridge loan. So, uh, what you do is you go, you get a piece of property, this piece of shit that needs to be fixed up and you, uh, you, you get with them, they do an appraisal based on the as is value and then the fix up value, right. And you get them a budget and everything. And, uh, you generally, the general terms of the, of the deal are, you know, you do 20 to 30% down for the purchase of the property you need to have the money for the fix up and you can get draws on the fix up. Right. So like, let's say I, I, I budget $20,000 for HVAC and $10,000, well, $15,000 for framing, you know, $15,000 for electric. I go out, I spend that 60 grand, however much that is. I call up AMC. I say, Hey, I need to get a construction draw. They go, okay, 150 bucks. We'll get the inspector out there. They go take pictures. Oh, yep. Jeff got the electrical done. Here's his inspection sticker. He got the HVAC done. He got the plumbing done. And then they, they put the money back in my account. Um, the end goal for this is to, you know, have a loan that's, you know, 70, 75% LTV on the, the fixed up kind of value of it. And the term of those loans are generally um, for say uh, nine to 18 months, something like that. And then what the investor does is they, refinance that either on a DSCR loan or with a bank or something of that nature um, and, uh, and, and do that. So, you know, those interest rates, you know, generally uh, low double digits, you know, probably 10 to 13%. Sometimes you get a point or two charged up front. It really depends on the, the, the term of the loan. But, you know, when you're using leverage with real estate, you know, you can get some pretty attractive 30, 40% returns on your, on, you know, your actual investment. And, um, so AMC, they can they can originate those those products and, and sell them, and you know everyone wins. Um, relatively short term paper. Um, moving on to the DSCR side, that would be the stabilized rent house, right? So you know, um, uh, uh, a, a deal I just took them, right? I had uh, uh, my own hard money lender. Um, uh, here in Lexington, and he lent me money for the fix-up and everything for this duplex. It's an opportunity zone duplex, so kind of interesting. And uh, you know, I, if I remember right, I bought this duplex for like thirty-six thousand dollars. I think my total cost basis in it was um, like two seventy-five, maybe three hundred. I'm, I'm having trouble remembering right now. But um, anyway, so I take it to AMC, and the total rents on it were three thousand dollars a month or are $3,000 a month. So I take it to AMC and we get it appraised. It appraises for uh, $375, right? And I'm doing a refinance with them. Um, it should close this week. And, uh, you know, so the terms on that are really interesting. My, to me, it's much more interesting than the terms I could get from a local bank. Um, with AMC, I'm getting a 40-year loan uh, with a fixed interest rate of, Eight point, I think it's six eight percent, eight point seven five percent, something around there. The first ten years is interest only. Then for the remaining thirty years, it amortizes over uh, over that thirty year loan, but it's a fixed interest rate the whole time, which to me is very interesting because I mean I've, I'm always really worried about having floating debt. Um, now compare that to a local bank. 
um, generally speaking, you're going to have a five-year adjustable rate mortgage on it. Um, so, and then your rate will adjust to whatever the, the you know prime plus or you know sofer plus whatever the bank is 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 pegged to. And uh, then it'll adjust every single year, right? And some banks even have balloon payments in them, right? Um, if you're going to a savings and loan in Lexington, the longest loan term they're going to have is 12 years. So while they may amortize, amortize it over 20, you're going to have to come up with a lump sum payment after 12, which, you know, shouldn't be difficult. But if shit hits the fan, maybe you don't have as much money as you need at the time, like you could really get squeezed. And, you know, Right now, a typical loan for an investment property in Lexington, you'd be paying seven and a quarter uh, percent, um, 20, 25 year amortization, um, and then it'd be a five year arm. Um, so if you actually look at the payments on that 20 or 25 year AM at seven and a quarter percent, they're actually higher on a month to month basis than that eight and three quarter percent or eight and a half percent loan that's interest only from AAMC. Not only that, but you can expense 100% of that interest-only payment because it's all interest. And if you're amortizing any of your loan, you don't get to, uh, to, to expense that on your taxes. So you get a tax hit at the end of the year that you're not actually getting cash flow for. So it, 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 you can make an economic argument that it actually makes sense to pay that extra point and a half to A and C, especially because it gives you the certainty of that loan, which I, I personally really like. Um, so uh, anyway, so you know we've 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 done several loans like that with them. Um, I'm taking them another twelve, thirteen, I think. We're we're in the process of starting with them right now. We just ordered appraisals last week. So it's it's a loan product I I love, just absolutely love. Did you take anything away from that that borrowing process that? change the way he thought about the business as an investor in any way? Uh, well, kind of. I mean, it, it's, I think it's always interesting to use a company's products, right? To Because if, it's just, it's basic scuttlebutt, right? I mean, Warren Buffett, you know, that's part of why he likes Coca-Cola, right? Is he knows the product, you know, there's no taste memory is what he talks about. You know, you can drink a 12 pack of Coca-Cola, get sick, and the next thing you're going to drink is probably Coca-Cola, right? It doesn't matter. So um, with AMC, uh, there were, two takeaways that I, I got from, from doing uh, a loan with them. One is they have yet to announce any forward flow agreements for, um, for their DSCR loans where they're selling these things yet, but they've talked about they're close to getting them signed uh, and, and whatnot um, on their last conference call, actually in early December, I think it was. And, you know, the loan product I'm talking to you about where it's a 40 year fixed interest rate loan, interest only the first, 10 years and then amortized over 30. I mean, either Jason Kopchak, the the CEO, either he is just the biggest fucking idiot ever for originating this loan that gives him, you know, 40 years of, of, of crazy interest rate risk, or he's got some forward flow agreements signed where he's selling these to somebody who has, you know, like a life insurance company or something that has, you know, the balance sheets to, to kind of, you know, the hedging strategies and, and whatnot to, to have this loan product, or he's very close to signing them. And, and it kind of has like a, you know, hey, we've got a handshake agreement. We're going to be selling these to you. It's just a matter of like, you know, dotting some I's and crossing some T's on, on, on the papers. So I think that they're actually, 
either selling the product right now or getting ready to. I, I see no reason why they would ever be originating that product otherwise, because you know they've got I think probably sixty-five million dollars in um, in loans that are basically unencumbered that they use the, the company cash for. Um, and then they've got two credit lines for roughly $50 million a piece, but those things don't have terms that are that long, right? So the, the dumbest thing you could ever do would be originate a 40-year loan product when you've got basically one-year debt uh, maturities coming, right? So that was one piece that I thought was interesting. And then the other uh, the other from, from the financial aspect is um, that, you know, there was one, one uh, uh, file that we started where um, uh, it was in early December, I want to say December the 10th. And through the course of the processing, the, uh, the, the loan person I, I was talking to was talking with one of their assistants in India and said, hey, continue processing file 10000411. So based on that, I'm guessing that as of December 10th, they had roughly 411 loans that were either closed or in process for this DSCR product, right? So if your average loan, um, amount is, uh, you know, uh, uh, $150,000, right? That's something like $62 million in loans that they were working on or had already originated. And if it's a quarter of a million dollars, then that's like $100 million of, um, of loans, right? So that would also tend to lead me to think that they're probably selling some of this product and just haven't communicated that with the market yet, which is based on the margin they can get absolutely huge for the company. Um, and then another thing that I kind of learned through this process was, you know, their underwriting, even though, you know, it has a higher yield and, and stuff like that, I, 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 the interest rate has higher yields. I think that their underwriting is pretty good. I mean, they're doing these at 70, 75% loan to value based on the appraisals. They're getting legitimate appraisals. It seems like they're doing other things like getting house canary reports and, 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 and things of that nature um, that they're using a lot of data to kind of verify the values from the appraiser. Um, to make sure that they're not taking any undue risk. Um, you know, they're getting personal guarantees on these loans. Um, you know, the loan documents I signed were frankly kind of scary um, because there was actually, you know, you know, I'm used to signing assignment of leases and rents where, you know, if I, uh, I, I default on my payments, um, they can send a letter to the tenants and say, hey, you need to start paying us now. Don't pay Jeff. Um, I actually signed an owner, uh, um, uh, uh, an ownership interest in my LLC, where if I default, they can actually take part of my LLCs from me. You know, um, I mean, these were really onerous uh, loan documents. I was, as an investor in the company, I was very impressed. As a borrower, I was frightened. Um, and uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, their underwriting seems good. And I think that they can do their underwriting cheaper than about anybody else because they've got a good loan team in India that, that takes care of a lot of that. And you know, these, the Indian uh, remote workers, they underwrote literally billions with a B um, dollars worth of real estate transactions for front yard residential. And they kind of paid them to just sit there and wait while the company was waiting to do stuff um, after that contract expired. So they've got a great system set up, um, you know, uh, I, I think they've got a good product that's really needed. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, they, I think it's just a fantastic setup. How large do you think the lending business can get? You gave some numbers there. Um, and where will that volume come from? Is it going to be small businesses like yourself or maybe a variety of areas? And can you give any context on the earnings potential as well? Obviously we don't need a 
you know, three decimal point model here, but just any roughly for the, you know, compared to the size of this business versus, uh, you know, what they could be two, three years from now. Yeah. So, um, I have a write up on seeking alpha that kind of gets into the, the earnings of this. And I want to say, you know, thank you for talking about the three decimal points, because I think that my, um, my estimate of earnings, you know, I'm, I'm thinking based on what I'm seeing and what the companies say, I think they're going to be probably earning about 10 bucks a share uh, this coming year, um, especially maybe if you base the numbers on the last quarter and, and do it, uh, an annualized run rate on that. Now, I will say I, I'm going to be precisely wrong on several of these points, right? But I think I'm roughly right when, when you take into account the big picture. So, you know, per their, the company's presentations in the past, they think they can easily do $600 million a year of loan origination and sales. And, you know, if you uh, uh, average out, uh, you know, um, okay, so 600 million, using my old school calculator, uh, times 0.035. So that gets you to like $21 million in uh, revenue, right? And, um, you know, you'll get a little bit of interest on top of that from where they'll be retaining some of these things on their balance sheet for a little bit of time. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, you, you get that. Um, I don't think you're going to really have many charge offs because, you know, the company's selling these. And the other thing to consider is everyone's freaking about real estate values. You know, they don't have a lot of legacy loans on their books. And by definition, they're originating these loans while the real estate's going down in value. So it's less risky to have these loans than it is to originate the ones that SACOM or Manhattan Bridge Capital or Redwood Trust or, 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 or uh, uh, Broadmark, um, any of those those people, right, that have these loans on the books. These loans now are safer than the old ones that were at the old inflated values from, you know, 2021. Um, so you should see a little bit less compression from that. But, you know, I think that, you know, going forward, you know, get rid of some litigation expenses, things like that. Um, you know, you're probably going to be looking at, you know, nine, ten million dollars, something like that of um, of, uh, 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 of SG&A, um, things of that nature. You know, you added a tax rate. I assumed in my Seeking Alpha article, you know, 17 and a half percent tax rate. And that was just I think that I was using that as like the global minimum tax. But I think with the U.S. Virgin Islands, like I don't know much about that tax structure. I'm under the impression you could probably get it down to less than that. But who knows? Um, you know, and then as the operation grows, they may add some SGNA, things like that. But um, yeah, so I mean, you know, I, I get to about 10 bucks a share is, is where I get to with that. And I think that frankly, the company could probably do a lot more than $600 million in, in, in loan origination and sales. Um, uh, I, I, that's just based on their presentations. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, the funding for all this is ultimately going to come from insurance companies. Um, hedge funds, um, maybe some banks, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of big players like that. And the market for that is just so huge. I mean, $600 million in, in loans that are yielding, you know, eight and a half to 12 and a half percent, I would think there'd be a fair demand for that. But $600 million of loans is nothing. I mean, it's absolutely nothing. I mean, like if, if AAMC captures, you know, 2% of the market for this kind of instrument, I mean, that would, they would be earning probably multiples of their market cap at that point. It, it's just, 
this market is the size of the Pacific Ocean. I mean, it's huge. And to kind of put some context here for listeners, uh, I, I believe Jeff might have mentioned it earlier in the episode, but he said $10 uh, in potential earnings power for a share. And, and he said that he think it'll be roughly right. Right now, it's about a $28 stock. So maybe that, I mean, that kind of plays, I guess, into the, the valuation question. We can talk about the new CEO after. Um, <clears throat> I think anyone can look at that and say, if they're earning $10 a share and the the, the stock is $28, it's cheap. I imagine the holdup is the legal dispute right now. How do you think that would resolve? Is that the only sort of overhang that you see on the stock? Um, so it's not the only overhang necessarily, but um, ultimately I do think that, that, it, that the litigation will be ruled in favor of AAMC or it will be pushed out for a very long period of time um, where there may be a settlement, something of that nature, or, you know, they just say, Hey, we're going to wash our hands of this. We'll, you know, maybe Luxor tries to redeem it in another five, another couple of years, something like that. But I do not view this as a huge danger to the company because I mean, they've already settled two of the lawsuits. Um, and one of the lawsuits they settled was actually a co-plaintiff with Luxor. That didn't want a part of it anymore. Um, interestingly enough, one of the things I, I think is really cool about the company is when they settled that lawsuit, they paid Putnam both with cash and with stock. The stock was issued at roughly $20 a share. A year later, they bought that stock back from Putnam for $10 a share. <laughs> so the company totally gets capital allocation, right? I mean, and if you think of it, that actually reduced the net price of that settlement. Um, which, which I think is really interesting. So I, I do think there is a you know some some overhang on that. But again, if you read through the documents, they very clearly seem to indicate AltaSource is in the right. And the other thing is that the AltaSource kind of has a big stick, big hammer, gun behind their back. I, I don't know, but because they they have a countersuit against a former director of the company who was Luxor's appointee to the board. And I shit you not, there are literally emails where they came out in discovery where he said, you know, I'm not worried about this event. Here's the information that's going to be coming out on this. If you want any more information on this, please let me know and I will be happy to provide it. Right. I mean, he was talking about earnings numbers and stuff. Right. He was literally saying in an email, I will share with you material non-public information. Right. And this was while Luxor was actively managing the book of stock. They were probably trading the stock at the time, um, but they're they're suing you know for for breach of fiduciary duty because there were some emails that came out where they were talking about kind of trying to bankrupt AltaSource. And if you're a director of the company, you've got a duty of loyalty to the company, not your hedge fund. Um, there was all sorts of that stuff that came out of Discovery, and it looks really bad. So they're in the process of litigating that uh, that aspect of the case in the U.S. Virgin Islands which is kind of the home court advantage for the company. So I think that's interesting. And I think that that at some point may get Luxor to want to settle, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so I, 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 that's, that's one kind of hang up for the stock. I think that there's been, well, okay. So um, the guy on Twitter, I know he's suggested a new book to me. Um, it's called How to Make Money, How to Make the Stock Market Make Money for You. Um, uh, by Ted Warren. And the guy that suggested this to me is, all, is uh, Alden, Aiden Tyrell. 
And um, he uh, basically, there can be investor fatigue with, with companies. And like this guy kind of like waits for that fatigue to set in and just nothing to happen with the stock. And everyone's so sick of looking at it for whatever reason. That is just kind of baby thrown out with bathwater, right? No one, no one wants to hear about it. And I think that part of that is like from where this had a long history with, you know, Altasource Portfolio Solutions, Aquin. It was part of the Irby Complex. It had literally a fifteen hundred dollars stock price, and then it goes down to ten. There was just, you know, no one looked at it forever, right? I mean, you can look at Seeking Alpha. I think there's there's over a thousand people that that follow this company that you know up until recently had a forty million dollar market cap. So I think there's fatigue with that. That's almost a little bit of a, of, of a hang up. Right. Um, and uh, I don't think a lot of people realize that there's actually this new business happening. And um, the real big thing is going to be uh, if the CEO can deliver with these forward sales contracts. I mean, if he does that, it's off to the races. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that, that that's kind of the, the justification for the low stock price. There's also a very low float on this. I mean, if you pull up a lot of the 13 Fs that are out there um, and also just the, you know, 13, there's a 13 G out there from a guy who owns like 12% and then Bill Irby owns like uh, 47%, I think. And then you start throwing in some other people that you can kind of deduce how much they own from just talking with them. Um, I'm coming up with like kind of a float that I can't really identify of say 225, 250,000 shares on something that has a total share outstanding of you know, 1.78 million. So this thing's tight, you know, and uh, uh, you know, the company has recently made it very obvious they're going to be repurchasing shares through a very interesting employment agreement that I absolutely love. And it's not going to take much to make the stock really move. No, just from a, a supply and demand aspect of the shares, but also because if they can deliver on these earnings, I mean, three times earnings, right? Right now, less than three times earnings. I mean, you know, other than like a super cyclical steel company or maybe, you know, um, your peak cycle for, you know, GM or, um, you know, a coal producer or something. I mean, three times earnings is cheap for basically anything else, um, you know, especially for a company who's in an industry where it's it's normal for these companies to be taken out at 10 or 12 times earnings. All right. Yeah, we're going to, I mean, that, that setup seems great. We're going to talk about maybe some risks at the end, because as we know, not all investments are riskless, but let's hit management. And they got a new CEO there. You said his last name, and I don't, I'm going to mispronounce it. It's Jason... Kopchek. Kopchek. Why is he important to the thesis? And then let's combine it to this other question. Can you also maybe toss in the compensation structure they have and how that, you know, maybe provides some powerful incentives to align their interests with shareholders? Yeah. So Jason, um, he uh, he's like the guy in the, 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 the bridge lending and uh, kind of securitization of, of DSCR loans. Um, uh, he, he he was at Nomura for a very long time. Um, he basically got the whole program together for Morgan Stanley um, uh, back in the day. And he just knows literally everybody in the industry, everyone. And when it comes to raising capital for, for this stuff, I mean, he's the guy to do it. I mean, there, there might be five other guys out there that could do something like this. Um, and, and Jason's just, he's, he's top tier. Um, 
So I think the, the power of his relationships and just the fact he's been doing this forever um, helps uh, helps put the company in a good position. And if you ever talk to Jason, uh, the 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 energy he has for for this business, I mean, he just eats, sleeps, and breathes it. It's it, it it's amazing. I mean, I, I think this guy probably like literally dreams about like DSCR loans and modifications of non-performing notes and things. I mean, it, it, it's crazy. He's, he's, he's a super cool guy. Um, so, I mean, he's, he's the guy to do this and um, the, you know, he's, he's got a, a pretty generous base salary. You know, I, I think that that's just part of it. Um, but what's really interesting here is the company has several different preferred shares that are issued. I mean, they've obviously got the one that they're in the legal spat with Luxor over, but um, they've, they've got two series that they just issued to Jason and to the CFO of the company. They haven't really disclosed any of the details on the one to the, the CFO. I think that they're still kind of working through them. Um, they're just, you know, wanting to disclose that they had uh, had issued them. I mean, we, we don't know the terms yet, but the, but the rough terms of the ones for Jason are for every three shares of common stock that the company repurchases, Jason's going to get one of them as like a preferred stock dividend. So I think that there are some tax structure benefits for, for these preferred issuances in the U.S. Virgin Islands. But from my perspective, you know, it's just an amazing incentive structure. And the people that have been critical of this are saying, wow, that's just a lot of money. Like if he goes and buys $10 million for the stock, he's going to get $3.3 million. And it's like, okay, yeah, that is a lot of money. And maybe he didn't do the work to, do, to get it, but I don't care. Ultimately, what I care about are the incentives, right? And the incentive is he's going to be buying back stock and he's going to be buying back a lot of it. So I, I think that, that this also shows the company thinks that the shares are undervalued because why would Bill Irby, who owns 45% of this, why would he ever be okay with that? He's not really, I don't think he can even be actively involved in the company, but, you know, at some point, you know, you can't piss off your 40, a 45% shareholder, right? Um, so I think there's that, but, um, you know, also I, I think that this, this, this really aligns Jason with shareholders, right? Like, I hope he makes all the money in the world on this, because if, if he buys back this stock before the market has an appreciation for the earnings power that this company potentially has. And he's going to have his thumb on it, right? Because he knows what the like where he is in negotiations for the forward flows, flow agreements and whatnot. You generally want them buying back shares pretty early, right? Because once the market figures out, hey, these guys are earning $10, $20 a share, whatever they're going to be earning, it's going to get bid up pretty quick. So the company can do some pretty interesting things with that. And the other thing is that I think it's important for management to be aligned with what the board and the shareholders want to have happen with the uh, the capital stack, if you will, the company, right? Because if the CEO is not incentivized to buy back shares and the board just comes in and says, God damn it, buy back shares of stock. We don't care if you want to or not, you're going to do it. The CEO would generally think, well, hell, the board's like taking money away from me to run my business how am I going to like hit my performance goals of revenue targets or earnings targets or EBITDA targets, whatever, if they're taking away money from me, that's going to make for a pretty miserable CEO. So with this, Jason's going to, I would think he would be very excited about buying back stock. I mean, the quickest way he could make a few million bucks is to go buy, you know, $6 million worth of stock. 
<laughs> right? Um, and there's, there's a big alignment. So, I mean, yeah, maybe Jason winds up owning a, a fair bit of the company. I think that's a good thing. I think you want the CEO to own a lot of the company. It also is doing so in a non-dilutive manner, right? I mean, I, I saw an article on Facebook, um, uh, on the company Facebook, um, where net their buybacks had just, I think, I don't even think they totally offset all the options they granted people, Right. It sounds about right. Yeah, that, that does sound correct. Maybe it was a wash, but net, it didn't do much for the common shareholder of the company, right? You can make arguments about, hey, the talent was incentivized to stay with the company and whatnot, but net, it did not reduce share count. With this, we know 100% the share count's going down, right? And it's on, like I was saying earlier, it's on a share count that I think of, you know, public flow to people that don't get the investment thesis here there's probably only a quarter of a million shares floating around. So, you know, that's going to do some interesting things to the share price. That, how much do you think they could buy it back? Is it going to be, do they have cash to do it now? Or is it going to be the earnings they generate over the couple next couple of years? Well, I think it's both. Um, I think that, um, you know, I mean, they've got, I'm estimating, right, based on their their last Q numbers, and and you know we haven't seen the you know the update for a while. I mean, we're, we're I'm I'm basically having to to hypothesize about numbers that were good four months ago now, right? But you know I'm guessing they've got probably sixty five million dollars in loans that are unencumbered by a warehouse facility or credit line. They could probably swap out some of those on on one of their credit lines and get some cash out to buy back a significant amount of stock. I would think that they've got some some cash laying around, you know, five, 10 million bucks. Um, you know, I, uh, you could see from their last queue that some of their loans that they have purchased had gotten some pay down and whatnot. So I, I think as principal pays off, they'll have money to do that. Um, if I remember right, they do have a share repurchase authorization that's current. So, you know, if they got a, uh, you know, a, a, a buying structure uh, set up, they could probably start buying back soon, if not now. Um, you know, right now there's probably a blackout period, but you know, the, what is it, the 10, 10B35 plan or whatever it is that, you know, lets you trade during blackout periods, they might be able to do that. So I don't know if they're in the market buying right now. Um, I would certainly hope that they are because I'd really like to see them buying back lots of stock given that I think it's cheap. And frankly, I want for Jason to, be making a bunch of money. And if he can buy the stock back on the cheap, he's making it more money for the company, right? Because the earnings per share numbers go up as the share count goes down. But also if he can buy stock at say $20 or $25, he gets a third of that. And then the stock price is trading for 35. He's got a 50% return for himself, right? Which I like even more. Like I, 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 I think... I, I think this is such a beautiful structure that more companies should institute, right? Because it's compensating the CEO for good work and for rewarding shareholders in a very tax efficient manner. I love it. Like I, I it's it is such a simple concept. I can't believe that we've never seen I've never seen it before and no one I've talked to has ever seen it before. I was gonna say this is the first time I've ever seen anything like this. Right. I guess is there can you imagine any downside? Like, is there any risk that they I don't know, <laughs> uh cop cop track takes on a whole bunch of leverage to try to buy back stock or something. Is there any, anything that could hurt? I mean, is there any bad incentives here? 
I mean, right now this thing's basically trading for book value. If you if you kind of net out the Luxor settlement, it's a little bit above book value, probably um, maybe like five. I think their book value with the Luxor settlement of eleven cents puts it like twenty five bucks. Um, so, but I mean, the company it can take a lot more leverage than it's got. I mean, if you compare this to you know Sacom Capital or or anyone else, they could take on a lot more leverage. And at the end of the day, you know, if it, uh, you know, let's say the share price right now is twenty. Let's say it's twenty eight fifty. Okay. And we multiply it by 1.78 million. So call it a market cap of $50 million, right? I mean, it's another 50, like if they took on $50 million worth of debt to fund a buyback, like does that really endanger the company? Like, uh, it does, doesn't sound like it. Hard selling. I mean, they, they literally, I, I think that they've got about $65 million in loans that are totally unencumbered by any warehouse facility or anything. So like, I don't know. I don't think it'd be too risky. I mean, yeah, that, that could eventually happen. I mean, but I mean, to me that that would be like champagne troubles, right? I mean, if they're buying back stock at $500 a share or something, it might not be that accretive at that point. Right. But okay. Like I hope that they are buying shares back. <laughs> it's a wonderful problem to have. Yeah. Sure. For shareholders today. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, because I mean, even even if, if you if, if they can earn ten dollars a share, right? I mean, this thing should be a triple digit stock, right? So like, if they're taking on debt to buy stock back up to a hundred bucks a share, like, more power to you, man. Do it. Yep, and it seems like the issue there will just be the will they have the volume in the each day to to fulfill that? That seems like the biggest issue, which is not really an issue, just something they got to work through. I think any listener here who is experienced with financials is going to have a little siren going off in the back of their head saying, you know, a quick growing financials or a quick growing lending business specifically can be risky. What metrics are you tracking to evaluate whether AltaSource is being smart with its lending operations as they scale this up over the next couple of years? Well, you know, you normally you would use, you know, uh, you would take a look at their bad loan allowances and stuff like that, right? If it was like a bank or something, right? Um, but from where this company's kind of selling their loans, you're probably not going to get to see that. Um, so, you know, I'd probably just look at, you know, what they're saying their forward sales are going to be of loans and just see kind of what the numbers play out to. I mean, I, I think that if you would start seeing like a big drop in the loans that they're originating and selling, that would probably be a red flag. Um, but you know, I think you could probably talk to him about that on the conference call and get some clarity on that. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, I think I think that'd be pretty much it because you know, they're, they're, the, the whole point here is to not take on balance sheet risk for the company. Is there any risk that? So I'm kind of thinking through uh, one of the sort of high flying uh, fintech lending. Uh, hyper, uh, fintech lending businesses of last year was Upstar, and that was kind of the pitch was that, well, they're not taking the balance sheet risk, they'll be less immune. But then the people that were buying their loans basically just stopped or yeah. didn't stop, but it obviously uh, they pulled back a lot. Is there any risk here that that happens, or do those forward flow contracts kind of allevi- alleviate any of that? Well, I mean, the hope is certainly that they would alleviate it. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, like, you know, people don't want to buy they're not they're probably not going to buy but at that point all source would see that happening and they would stop originating the loans um you know um and with upstart what kind of lending were they doing personal finance yeah so just 
really high interest to consumers, say, yeah. with their own proprietary uh, lending model. Yeah, so there's absolutely no collateral for stuff like that, right? So, I mean, you're going to have huge charge-offs and, and, and write-downs and things like that. You know, with AltaSource, this is secured by real estate, right? And it's also secured by a personal guarantee on top of that, which granted, you know, when real estate goes bad, a lot of times the personal guarantee is not worth anything, but there's still going to be something there. And, you know, based on the appraisals that, you know, I've, I've seen for my stuff with them, you know, like, I don't think that there's going to be a 30% drop in the value of the house, right? It'd take a lot to do that, you know? Um, so I think you've got some safety there and I think the yield on it makes it an attractive product. But at the end of the day, the market for real estate notes and things that are yielding these type of interest rates is huge, right? I mean, the six hundred million dollars that they think that they could do per their their um, their investor presentation from the fall, it, it's literally a drop in the ocean. So you know, I, I think that they can seize you know just a de minimis amount of the marketplace and do really well. And I think that a lot of that is going to be due to, you know, the relationships that Jason has and is developing. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think you would probably want to look at loan volumes and just listen to their conference calls to see if things are slowing down or speeding up. But um, I think that they're going to be more immune to that than, say, um, you know, um, the, 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 the fintechs that the fintech company that you mentioned or, uh, you know, some of the SPACs that were, were fintech related, you know, the the buy now pay later companies i I, this is just a it's it's just a better product right i mean there's actually collateral for it right i guess we've gone somewhat long here maybe just two closing questions um first one do you see any other catalysts near term and then basically last question risks how could this go wrong yeah okay so um other catalysts i mean look for forward flow agreements to be announced, right? I mean, they, they said that in their last conference call that they were two to three weeks away from signing some. We haven't heard anything that's been maybe a month, um, a little bit more longer than a month. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm looking for those. If they if they can get those, that'd be a big catalyst. I think a Luxor settlement would be a catalyst. But another one that is, this is like the lottery ticket, by the way, and I don't know what the odds of this are, but this is a huge lottery ticket is the company is party to a lawsuit against PIMCO and BlackRock. And um, it's over, you know, how they went about servicing stuff and how basically how PIMCO and BlackRock were, you know, higher tranches of some of these mortgage-backed securities. They were saying, you all need to foreclose. All the sources like, no, we have an obligation to all of the tranches of this, not just you guys. So we think on a net present value basis, we should modify the loans. And, um, you know, BlackRock said some things that probably don't sound very good in the eye of the public, um, uh, you know, that came out in discovery and whatnot. So anyway, uh, they're, they're trying, they're litigating that in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And right now they're trying to figure out if the U.S. Virgin Islands are where this case will be heard. And if that's the case, that would probably be very bad for PIMCO and BlackRock. But the amount of damages for uh, the AltaSource would potentially be um, claiming would probably be in the billions of dollars. Um, I don't know what the odds of that hitting are. Um, 
I would think that there might be a settlement. Um, I don't know. Pimco and BlackRock, those guys, pretty well connected to the financial system. Frankly, I don't know if I would want to be in a lawsuit with them, <laughs> just from a personal safety <laughs> aspect. But, um, you know, I mean, if they settle it for a couple hundred million bucks or, I mean, even 10 million, that's material to the stock price. But if, you know, the lottery ticket hits, it's like, that's crazy. The lending business wouldn't even be something we'd be talking about. So that could be an interesting catalyst. Again, they haven't figured out where that's going to be heard yet. If that comes down to the Virgin Islands, that would be very interesting. That's another, that's another catalyst. How about risks? Uh, well, I think the number one risk is Jason not performing. Right. Like if, if he cannot get these forward flow agreements, then, you know, I th- that's obviously not good for the upside of the stock. Um, I think that the worst case scenario is, is like they just kind of keep their loan book that they've got. They're not selling many loans. And then all of a sudden this turns into, say, a Sacom Capital or Manhattan Bridge Capital, where they're basically just a, a hard money lender that's lending money out at 12, 13, 14 percent. And then it trades back down to book value, maybe a slight discount to book. So it's like, and I think the result for this is pretty binary, right? I mean, I think by summer we'll know either Jason's plan is working or it's not. And if it's working, this thing's going to be up a fair bit. And if it's not working, then it's probably a 15 or $17 stock, you know? So I think, I think that, you know, you've got that risk with Jason, but I think that that's somewhat mitigated by this comp structure. Why would they be announcing it right now? You know, why would they be announcing such a generous comp structure? Um, and then ultimately, you know, if they lose the Luxor suit, you know, that could, that would not be great. I don't even know that what that would look like um, because, you know, the judge in the summary judgment arguments, she even told Luxor, she was like, you're not getting the full $144 million. Like, clearly the funds were not legally available. Like, I don't even know why you're claiming you deserve this. So, you know, I think that's a mitigating factor. And, you know, um, you know, I was able to actually watch the arguments for that and hear hear the judge talk. Um, the transcripts on the New York um, Supreme Court site, you know, I would encourage people to go read that if they're interested in it. Um, but, you know, so, I mean, I think that's a risk. And then, you know, if they originate a bunch of loans that go bad, I mean, that, you know, litigation risk, I mean, you know, they could be sued by the people they sell them to. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, this is kind of the risk that you would have with any, any other business, right? I mean, if you sell a bad product, you're going to get sued. So, you know, that, that's kind of where I think my history using the product gives a little bit of assurance to me on that because I think they do a good job with it, right? Um, okay, I think know. that's all. Yeah, I think that's all the questions we have. Um, that's very comprehensive. I guess maybe just a disclosure for everyone. We mentioned the market cap here briefly. It's very illiquid. It's a micro cap. So any, any disclosure we typically have on it, just, you know, amplify that keep it in mind to obviously do your own due diligence and everything but if people want to read more on it um or kind of keep up with you keep up with what you're saying where are the best places to do that yeah and real quick just for perspective on friday um 11,818 shares traded hands and the stock price went up by two dollars and 34 cents which is nine nine 9.14 so like illiquid wide bid asterisk so be careful if you're doing that right don't but anyway, uh, so if you want to hear more about this, uh, you can either read about uh, my, my stuff on, on Seeking Alpha, on my, my, my blog, which is Ragnar is a Pirate, and then um, Twitter. I talk about it a fair bit on Twitter. So just do a hashtag search for AMC. And if you scroll down a little bit, you will definitely see my, my ramblings about it. All right. And uh, we'll link to 
uh, at least the, I think it's Ragnar's a pirate dot blogspot or something like that. So we'll, we'll link to it in the bio and uh, if anyone wants to read more on it, but I think that's going to do it. Thank you, Jeff, for coming on the show again. Look forward to having you on uh, at some point in the future. I'm going to throw a disclosure on this. Uh, Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time. Okay, I'm welcomed by the founder of our exclusive sponsor, Stratosphere.io, Braden Dennis. Braden, welcome. I wanted to basically give listeners that are interested in Stratosphere more context around what the platform is. So, Let's start there. What is Stratosphere? And then why did you decide to start it? Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I'm glad to be sponsoring the podcast as, as a listener myself. I like the deep dives. I like the different guests, the different perspectives on uh, some interesting companies. So I think it's a good concept for a podcast, which is kind of what led me down to making Stratosphere in the first place, which was I was making content online and frustrated with the tools that were available to me. So I started building uh, a very scrappy version of the product just for free, just to figure out like, how can I overlay 10 years of financial side by side, up to 35 years we have now? And how can I actually build out a proper database of, of company KPIs that are not just revenue, but like if you're looking at like Costco, like how many warehouses do they have? How many paid members are, are in like our Costco members, or, you know, if I want to do a comp against like the streaming, like how many Netflix subs versus uh, HBO plus discovery plus no Disney plus, like how do I build out proper comps of those? Because those are the metrics that actually move the business. Those are the ones that actually move the needle more than any like gap financial metric you'll find. And so it started off as just purely a passion project and, and I figured let's just make the leap into entrepreneurship and uh, see where it goes. And, you know, it brought, brought us here today. Yeah. And like you mentioned, it, it is the stuff that you can't find anywhere else, at least not in a, I mean, you could find it page by page and on their financials. Exactly. But- you can go through 35 uh, PDF filings and find it, be, be my guest. And, and, that, and that's basically what we did for a long time. So what do... I guess maybe describe the pricing model so people know, sure. but uh, you're going to say it, it. There's there's a free platform. What do free users get? Yeah, good good thing. Because our, our mission was to always build a free platform. And, and so we really kept true to our mission and give like an amazing platform for free, which gives you 10 years of financial statements on 40,000 global security. So we don't list you just to US securities, it's on global stocks. We give you a watch list, the screener, comparisons on competitors, fundamental charting up to 10 years, filings, transcripts. You can look at the press releases right inside the app, news, ETFs, funds, super investors, hedge fund letters, investor holdings, and financial calendars. Those are all the features you'll get on uh, on the free tier. Now, if on, on the the middle tier, the personal tier, you're going to unlock up to 35 years of financials and just kind of like nice to have like quality of life, like notifications being built in 
um, price targets for building models, uh, like business owner mode where you can hide prices, like kind of like just that next level for, for individual investors who want to level up. And then the the top tier is for like investment teams and professionals who want to unlock that KPI data and request KPI coverage as well. Like a firm will be like, here, we want these 10 names in our coverage and in your coverage. And then you'll have basically our, our entire universe that we're looking at, which is great, right? Because like earnings season comes around and we have it updated within 15 minutes when Netflix comes out with their net subscriber ads, like it's right there in one place, uh, especially easy to handle around the, the peak of earnings season that, that matters a lot for these people. And so we have a, a premium tier for that as well. That's the, that's the three plans that are available today. And now a perfect time to shameless plug our code. If you use CCM, you get 15% off any of the paid plans, but I think that covers it pretty well. Uh, if you're interested, please go ahead and check out stratosphere.io. We'll, we'll have a link in the uh, description as well, but uh, thank you, Brayden, for joining us. Ryan, keep it up. I really like what you and Brad are doing and uh, I'll be listening along.